Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Publishing Director. Joining me is Bishop Barron for a discussion about the book of Genesis. We're kicking off a new series here. We're going to ask how we understand the creation story in Genesis and what's its literary genre and what are the big significant religious truths that each line is intending to communicate. But before we get there, Bishop, it's good to see you. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Brandon. Thank you. Always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. Every time we get together, we have some new publication to share, whether it's yeah. a book or some print periodical. And today, it's the newest issue of the Evangelization and Culture Journal. I'm holding it up here on camera. This one is dedicated to the topic of poetry. So we've got articles on Virgil and Dante and Gerard Manley Hopkins. We got feature pieces on Faulkner and Bob Dylan, one of your favorites. And I think there's a lengthy interview in there with you about Dante and his Divine yeah. Comedy. Um, tell us about this issue on poetry and why people should be interested in it. I love it. Yeah, I just was going through it the other day. And uh, as always, it's beautiful to look at, beautifully laid out. Um, Todd Warner, the editor, does a marvelous job. And as you say, a lot of good content. I'm particularly pleased. They have a, a lengthy excerpt from this book of mine that we just reissued called The Now I See. I wrote it years ago. But I have a section there from William Faulkner's The Bear, which is one of my favorite stories in the 20th century because it's really about God. And it's beautifully illustrated in the journal, and that excerpt is in there. As you say, right, the um, interview with me about Dante and my kind of relationship with Dante over the years, uh, and then lots of other good stuff and beautifully laid out. And you got to join the Institute to get it. <laughs> That's right. You have to go to the website wordonfire.institute to sign up. When you do, you will receive a welcome package in the mail that will include this issue of the Evangelization and Culture Journal, also a book, also some extra materials. Of course, when you sign up, you get access to all the videos inside of the Institute, all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. So if you've been sitting on the fence for a while, now's a good time to sign up and get this special issue on poetry. All right. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, today we're going to kick off a new five-part series of discussions on the book of Genesis. Um, I, I thought this deserved a much longer discussion, a much longer conversation than just a quick one-off episode. So I thought we'd walk through Genesis, and in particular, the, the roughly first half of Genesis. We'll do a new episode every three to four weeks. In this first one today, we're going to discuss creation, and then that's going to be followed by episodes on Adam, Eve, and the fall, and then an episode on Abraham, an episode on Jacob, and then finally, Joseph. So a, a really power-packed series here on the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis, of course, is the first book of the Bible, maybe the most foundational book, uh, but it's also, as we all know, the source of so much confusion, especially among non-Christians. And that's one of the focuses of our podcast is discussing Christianity with non-Christians. Bishop, would you say that Genesis is the most misunderstood book of the Bible, and if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, probably. And I'd say the reason is a confusion about genre. So I go right back here to the great Vatican II document, Dei Verbum. Very short, you can read it in one sitting. I would urge all Catholics especially to read that. It gives you uh, the Catholic approach to the Bible, let's say. Well, one of the most um, seminal observations that is made in Dei Verbum is that we must be attentive to the genre of the literature when we're trying to interpret a given book. So, as I've often said, the Bible isn't a book. It's a library of books. It's a collection. Uh, ta biblia in Greek means the books. 
It's plural. So the Bible, better we call it maybe the scriptures, as we say, might be more accurate. It's the collection of writings. Genres include something like history, um, epistolary literature, think of Paul, it's letters. Think of apocalyptic literature, book of Daniel, the, the book of Revelation, for example. Prophetic literature, gospel. Gospel is its own kind of literary genre. Poetry, think of the Psalms. Um, wisdom literature, think of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, etc. My point is you've got a whole slew of different genre. When interpreting a text, the very first question perhaps to ask is, what kind of text is this? So if I pick up uh, Melville's Moby Dick and I think, okay, this is an instruction manual in how to, um, how to hunt whales. Well, <laughs> you might find some of that in there, but no, it's a novel, and that is going to change your whole way of, of approaching it. I pick up, for example, I'm currently reading um, Ron Chernow's big biography of George Washington. Well, it's a biography in the full kind of modern sense of the term, meaning it's an attempt to tell this life story as precisely and completely as possible. It's got thousands of footnotes you know, from letters and diary entries and previous histories and so on. Um, it's a biography of, of, a, of a modern type. Okay, what kind of genre is the book of Genesis? Well, one complicating factor is even within the book of Genesis, you've got shifts in genre, right? But we're going to look at the very beginning, maybe the most controversial uh, part of the book. What is that? Well, if you pick up the opening chapters of Genesis, I doubt you'd be tempted to say, oh, that's a biography like Ron Chernow's biography of George Washington. It just doesn't read like that. It doesn't have that literary form or style. By the same token, you read those opening chapters, you're not going to say, oh, this, this is um, like Isaac Newton's uh, physics. Oh, oh, this reads like um, Stephen Hawking's cosmology. Well, well no, it's, it's written long before the rise of, of those modern physical sciences. So it's not that kind of text either. What is it? Well, people have, have made different suggestions. I rather like Karl Barth's suggestion that it's in the genre of saga. You might say theologically informed saga. Legend, if you want. Um, myth, if you want, though that word is so easy to misunderstand. I've used the language of theological poetry. Um, think of, of great poems that convey very profound truths about human life, about God, about, you know, meaning and purpose and all that. Well, it, it's theological poetry. It's poetry that is bearing to us very profound truths about God, about God's relationship to the world, about the purpose of the world, about salvation history, all of it. So, you know, saga, okay, I, I rather like that, theological saga, theological poetry. And once we get that right, then we know how best to read it. To get back to your question, a lot of the confusion comes, I think, from confusion about genre. If we say, boy, this is really primitive science, well, then I'm going to write it off. Or I say, boy, this is really faulty history with no you know, support from, well, yeah, then I'm going to write it off. But then you're, you're just misconstruing its, uh, its nature. I think the importance of identifying the genre helps us to solve the 
the situation most Christians find themselves in when discussing Genesis with others, and they receive a question like, do you believe in the Bible, or do you right. believe in Genesis? Do you think Genesis is true? And it, it, without this focus on genre, that that becomes as silly or simplistic a question as right. like, do you believe in the library? Is the library true? Or do you, do you, yeah. is Moby Dick true? Well, I, I don't yeah, even right. know how to begin to ask that. So the well, genre is like the first thing you have to solidify. Right. That's precisely right. And stay with Moby Dick for a second, because Melville, the young Melville, spent time on whaling ships. Uh, he traveled around the world in whaling ships. He knew a lot about whaling ships. So is Moby Dick true? There's a lot of truth in there, even at that level, of what a whaling ship is like, what it was like to live on one, what did people sound like, what did they look like, what did they do? He has long sections there about how they dragged the whale onto the ship and how they cut it up. And Well, yeah, he knew all about that, and probably there's a lot of, of practical historical truth in there. But, well, was there really a Moby Dick? Was there a white whale? Where was he? You know, well, now we start asking the wrong questions. So the same with the Bible. I mean, can you find a lot of historical truth in the Bible? Yeah, yes, indeed, lots of it. But we have to attend to the genre is the first question. All right, so now that we've identified the genre, which you've described as theological saga, theological poetry, I thought maybe for the rest of this episode, we'd walk through this creation story almost line by line and, and have you unpack it for us, explain it to us. The opening lines of Genesis, maybe the most famous lines in the Bible say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's so much packed in there. We know there's been whole books just written on that sentence alone. But let me, let me ask you this. From the very fact that God is creator, that's what we learn in the very first verse, God created, what can we learn about his nature? What does that tell us about God himself? A lot, because in every other religious and, and philosophical perspective, God or the gods are supreme instances of worldly things, if I can put it that way. Think of, of here Greek and Roman mythology, where the gods clearly exist within nature, right? Whether we say they're on the top of Mount Olympus or we see them operating and acting, coming down in a kind of a physical way, they're great, they're, they're exalted instances of creaturely natures, but they're still worldly, natural things, right? When Genesis says, in the beginning, God created everything other than God, right? The heavens and the earth mean, as we say in the creed, the visible and the invisible. Whatever is contingent, categorical, finite, whatever exists in the world was made by God. That means God is not a worldly object. God is not an item in the universe. Now, welcome to every atheist I know, from Feuerbach through Christopher Hitchens. They all make the same mistake of, of conceiving God as some item or object in the world. And I'm looking now for evidence of that reality. I've told the story often of the, you know, the Russian cosmonaut going up into space and, hey, I looked all around, there was no God. Well, there's someone that has never understood the opening uh, line of the book of Genesis. God, as the creator of all these things, is not an item with, within the world. I've used the comparison. It's, it's not a perfect comparison, but not bad, of the author of a text, right? So the author of a text is responsible for everything in a text. Think of Moby Dick, if you want, uh, or of a great Dickens novel, you know? He invents a world. He created everything in that world, every description, every character, every action, the plot, 
everything was created. Well, where's Dickens in that novel? Where is he? I don't see Dickens anywhere. But where's Melville in this story? Well, there's, there's Queequeg, and there, there's Ishmael, and there's Captain Ahab, and there's the white whale. Oh, there, there he is. There's Melville. Well, of course not. But Melville is responsible for the entirety of the story. Well, in a similar way, where's God? Oh, I don't see him. There's Brandon. There's a camera. Here, where's God? Well, that's a stupid way to approach it. He's the reason why there's something rather than nothing. He's the reason why the world exists at all. And therefore we know, to get, I'm, I am getting to your question, <laughs> therefore we know God is an unconditioned reality. God is not a worldly reality. So as Aquinas puts it, God is not an ends. He's not a being, but rather ipsum esse, the sheer act of to be itself, from which all beings come but who is not reducible to the level of beings. That's all contained, I would argue, implicitly in that opening line of Genesis. We then read that when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Kind of mysterious, almost poetic description there. What does this mean and why is it significant? Yeah, and it's the, the famous Hebrew term behind that, the tohu wabohu, um, is this formless waste or the watery chaos. I like how Karl Barth again called it das nishtiga, the, the nothing, the non-being. Don't think of it as, oh, there's God, and there was some kind of primal stuff that God worked with. Because we're dealing again with poetic language here, not precise philosophical language. Because Philosophically, uh, the philosophically precise way to put it is that God makes the world ex nihilo, out of nothing or from nothing. What's being described here, though, it seems to me, is God's power over das Nichtige, God's authority over all that would stand athwart him. So think of the watery chaos, sin, rebellion, all that stands athwart God's creative purposes. Um, it pops up in the waters of the Red Sea. It pops up in um, the water that Jesus calms and walks upon. That's the tohu vabohu. And God shows his sovereignty over this, um, this resistance. Next we read that a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Uh, what's going on here? There's a lot of commentary about that wind and what that wind could have been. Ruach Yahweh, right? Ruach Adonai, the, the breath of the Lord, the, the breath of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit, if you want. The Spiritus Sanctus means the holy breath. The creative energy and power of God that from the beginning brings all things into being. And then, I would say, Brandon, see, not just looking back, but looking around, the Ruach Adonai, the, the, the breath of the Lord, hovers continually over the world that he's made. Because God is breathing life into the world, sustaining the world, drawing the world to himself. So the author of Genesis is signaling that from the beginning, there's been this power brooding, if you will, over the, the, uh, the world. The, the Hebrew specialists talk about that the, the verb there, hovering, sometimes brooding, has the sense of a like a mother bird brooding over her eggs, you know, 
of the, the fomenting life, giving rise to life. And I think that's a very good way to describe the Holy Spirit. Breathing life into the world, breathing life into us, breathing life into the church. I'd make a link between the Ruach, the, the breath of Yahweh, and then Jesus, after the resurrection, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, right? And then what do we hear on Pentecost? But a great driving wind comes. There's the Ruach Yahweh again. There's the same creative spirit, this time enlivening the church. Well, that's every time I do a confirmation. I'm, I'm calling on the Ruach, right, the breath of the Lord. So it, it's a wonderfully pregnant sort of idea that has implications all up and down the Bible. Next up, we read, again, some of the most famous words in the Bible. It says, God says, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, we mentioned at the beginning that it's significant that God created, that that is somewhat unique among religions, but what does it tell us that God created through an act of speech? It tells us a whole world, doesn't it? Unlike uh, the other, uh, or uh, unlike ancient myths, God does not make the world through an act of violence. So very typically in the ancient myths, God or the gods have to face down opposition. They fight. They, they impose themselves. And very often the world is construed as made up of the severed parts of the conquered bodies of the, of the gods' enemies, right? Well, the point is there's none of that in the creation account in Genesis. God does not resist anything. He's not intervening. He's not opposing anything. Rather, through a nonviolent, and generous act of speech, God gives rise to the world. There's a universe, Brandon, in that of, of the morality that comes up out of the Bible. I mean, why is, in Jesus, for example, nonviolence and love of enemies so fundamental? Because that's the divine way of giving rise to order. Almost every myth from the ancient world up to the present day says some version of order comes through violence. Now, look, we won't get into the whole just war debate. In a finite fallen world, sometimes I think violence has to be used. But is the biblical ideal that God's manner of bringing order is not through violence but nonviolence? Yes, it seems to me. And Jesus says exactly that in the Sermon on the Mount. And then light. If, if the breath of Yahweh is a consistent symbol, look at light. You know, in darkness, we... There's something lovely about darkness, there can be, but in the Bible, darkness is usually a symbol of, um, of sin, of being lost. Uh, the studio I'm in right now, uh, I've got bright lights on me, but like all around me, it's just it's dark. And if I started walking in that direction, I'd probably stumble on, on a camera or something. You know, I'd, uh, darkness means I don't know where I'm going. I, I'm lost. Light. What does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, but by my light, you know where to go. You can follow me. I'm the way, see? Well, all that, I think, is implied in, in God's opening move of let there be light. From him comes the light of the spiritual life, of the moral order. And then take one more step. Um, we even use the image when we get a, a, a new idea or we, we understand something. We put a light bulb over our head, right? Um, the light went on. Hey, I was in the dark and the light went on. God speaks the world into being, which means he imbues the world with intelligibility. Um, how wonderful, how strange and mystical it is 
that every dimension of the universe is imbued with intelligibility. We can understand it. It corresponds to a mind. I've argued, we've talked about this before, the contemporary sciences depend upon this intuition, which is a mystical one. It can't be proven a priori, or it, I should say, it's, it can't be proven a posteriori, it's more accepted a priori, that the world is characterized by intelligibility. Well, that's beautifully conveyed in God's intelligent speech, and let there be light, let there be luminosity and intelligibility. All that's there, I think. Over the next several paragraphs in the first chapter of Genesis, we read about God creating all sorts of things. You've got the waters, the fish, the birds, the cattle, the creeping things. As my kids say, the creepy things. Why did God create the creepy things? <laughs> um, but they all come out of the Creator in a sort of stately procession. You've often linked this to a liturgical rite, a procession of ministers like we might see yeah. at Mass. What's going on here? What's the author trying to communicate with this literary style? I think it's an it's a ingenious move, the way a great writer will take a particular uh, symbol or image and then he imbues it with, with multivalent meanings, right? So all the things you mentioned, uh, from trees and mountains and animals and the earth itself and the sun, the moon, were all in different cultures in the ancient world worshipped, weren't they, as gods. Sun worshippers, moon worshippers, I worship this mountain, I worship the, this river, right? So in one move, the author of Genesis is dethroning all these things. He's saying, no, not God, not God, not God, not God. Remember in Augustine's Confessions, that, that lyrical passage when Augustine imagines the, the, all of creation speaking to him, and they say, look higher, look higher, look higher. Everything in creation says, don't look at me. I'm not the one you should be worshiping. Look higher. So the author of Genesis here is saying the same thing, look higher. But then, now this is the other side of it, the positive side. All these things now dethroned, from, from, let's say, a, a pretentious place of, of, um, of primacy. But now watch what they do. As you say, they come forth one after the other in an ordered procession, and Catholics right away recognize that. That's the way a liturgy begins. The cross, and then the, maybe the candle bearers, and then the, the one bearing the book, and then the, the deacon, and then the priest, and, and then the, the bishop, if you're in a, a full you know, liturgy. What we're seeing is a kind of liturgical procession, which tells us the purpose of creation. The purpose of all these things now is to enter into a great chorus of praise to the one who created them. Now, who comes last in a liturgical procession? The one who leads the praise, the priest or the bishop. Who comes last in the great procession of the book of Genesis? Human beings, right? Well, there's the whole story, and I'd argue, Brandon, that's the hermeneutical, the interpretive key to much of the Bible. What's our purpose? Not to be gods. I mean, watch now every sinner in the Bible falls into that trap. That I turn myself into God. No, 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 you're not God. You're a creature. Moreover, not to be the one who dominates creation. No, no, that, that's, that's also a mistake. Rather the one who is to lead all of creation in a great chorus of praise. We are the priests. Now fast forward to the formation of the people of Israel. You are a holy priesthood. You are a royal nation, a people set apart. 
They're meant to remind all of humanity of what our task is, to lead all of creation from planets and stars to the creepy crawly things in a great chorus of praise. Uh, wonderful. It's a wonderful move there. Now, watch it throughout the entire Bible. Whenever something goes wrong, and, and I, I would challenge anyone to, to find an exception here, whenever something goes wrong with the human race, with the people of Israel, with Jesus' followers, whatever it is, it's because of bad praise, right? As Augustine just put it, they, they mistook the, the creature for the creator. That's always the fundamental problem. We've lost our mission, our vocation, to be the priests that lead creation in a chorus of praise. I think that's the whole Bible in a way. And we just, we're going to ring the changes on that theme now up and down the whole Bible. After all of this creative work is finished, we read that God rests on the seventh mm. day. And at first glance, it can seem a little odd that why would God need to rest? Was he fatigued? Was he tired after all yeah. this work? So why did God rest? Right, the omnipotent, unchanging God doesn't get tired. So, right, it's a, it's a symbol here. We, we speak of when someone's died, we say, may, may he rest in peace, right? We don't mean may he sit in a hammock for all eternity. Requiescat in pace, rest. Aquinas says that the will has two basic moves, right? It seeks the absent good, so that's a very active. There's a good that I want, I don't have it, I'm going to go after it, right? But the second move of the will, Aquinas says, is to rest in the good possessed. That means to savor it, to, to taste it. It's, I, I use a comparison as a baseball fan to, I mean, watching a baseball game. It's not so much seeking an absent good. It's, I'm in the presence of this good. This game is unfolding before me, and it's not really accomplishing much. Uh, it's going to end, and it'll be over, and I'll move on. But while I'm there, I'm resting in it. Or I'm playing a game of chess, or I'm riding my bike, or I'm playing golf. Um, I'm resting in it. I'm savoring it. I'm not thinking about anything else, not trying to get anywhere else. Well, that's what God does now, importantly, on the seventh day, after the six days of, of making the world, God savors the world, which is why we'll see eventually Israel is invited into a similar Sabbath rest, the day of savoring. Doesn't mean lying in a hammock, though that could be part of it, but it's to savor the goods that you have. Like, you know, Brandon, with you and your now with seven kids, um, these, probably the, I'm guessing the best moments in your life are when maybe in between lots of seeking absent goods, right, which we all have to do, you have these moments where you just say, it's good to be here. This is good. <laughs> this is wonderful. I'm, I'm savoring these kids. I'm savoring uh, the presence of my wife, you know. Well, that's a Sabbath moment. The Sabbath day is meant to be that in a very focused way so that we don't forget it. So that's the beautiful thing is that God himself sets the tone for the Sabbath day by savoring the world he's made. And I always think, well, God does that all the time, right? That's what God does all the time with his creation. He savors it and seeks to foster it and seeks to bring it where he wants it to go. 
Um, and we're meant to imitate God as we savor the goods of the world. Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. Today, we have a question from New Delhi, India. So for us, mm. all the way on the other side of the world, it's a really good question about prayer. Here it is. Hi, my name is Helena. I am from New Delhi, India. So my question is, how do I start mental prayer? What is the best way to begin with mental prayer? Since... I am a person who always is distracted and finds it really difficult to focus on one thing at a time. So can you tell me what is the best way to start mental prayer? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. Um, I would recommend the rosary. I think the rosary is a great contemplative prayer. I've used that term from Thomas Merton, that it it calms the monkey mind. And and you're describing that as like, I'm distracted. I'm going here and there. I'm I'm doing this and doing that. I'm worrying about tomorrow, and I'm worrying about what happened yesterday. And that's the monkey mind. The rosary, by its repetition, has a mantra-like quality. It calms the spirit. It calms the mind. It focuses the mind. But then, as you know, part of that prayer is to bring before your mind's eye, bring before your your imagination these great scenes of the Annunciation and the Visitation and the Resurrection and the Crowning of Mary, etc. Good, that's mental prayer. And the very rhythm and repetition of the rosary predisposes the mind to enter into that contemplative place. So I can't think of a better way to begin is what you call mental prayer than the classic prayer of the rosary. Well, thanks for your great question. If other listeners have questions for Bishop Barron, they can send them in at the website askbishopbarron.com. Every episode, we pick a question to answer here on the air. Well, we hope you like this first discussion about the book of Genesis. We just covered a few verses from chapter one in this long discussion, but we've got several more episodes planned. And the next one, we'll turn to chapter two and we'll look at Adam, Eve, and the fall. So look for that sometime soon. And then finally, remember, pick up your copy of this gorgeous new volume of the Evangelization and Culture Journal. It's a volume on poetry, lots and lots of beautiful pictures, uh, reflections on famous poets and poems, including some contemporary poets, some really good uh, modern poetry in here as well. So pick it up. You can get yours by joining the Word on Fire Institute at the website wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.